Hello, my name is Ari Satok, and I want to welcome you to my podcast, Once Upon a Conversation. I'm an author and an educator living in New York City, and I've embarked on a journey to interview 100 interesting people and share those interviews with my listeners. The aim is simple. People are full of wisdom, and so my goal in these interviews is to tease that wisdom out to then share it with others, since wisdom can inspire us, open our hearts, change the way we see the world or ourselves. I'm extremely lucky to have really interesting people lined up to join me in these 100 conversations, and I'm excited today to be interviewing Brooke Eby. Brooke Eby is a 34-year-old who was diagnosed in 2022 at the age of 33 with ALS. ALS, a neurodegenerative disease, also known as Lou Gehrig's disease, has no cure, and though there is some variability, the average survival time for those with ALS is two to five years. I first came across Brooke's story in a New Yorker magazine article, and when I did, I instantly felt compelled to reach out and see if she was willing to chat with me on this podcast. I'm so grateful that she said yes. In the time since Brooke's ALS diagnosis, she has raised a ton of money for ALS-related causes. She has raised a tremendous amount of awareness of the disease through platforms, including, among other things, Instagram, TikTok an appearance on the Today Show, and other podcast interviews like this one. As she's been dealing with the remarkably challenging reality of ALS, she's modeled for us all what it can look like to respond to immense difficulty with courage, with hopefulness, and often, in her case, even with laughter. So many of the videos she's put out about what she's going through are really funny. Brooke, I imagine you've been told this hundreds of times now, but your way of responding to your illness brings so much light into the world and into so many people's lives. So thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much. That was the best intro ever. I want to just record that and send it to everyone before they talk to me. <laughs> I'm, I'm truly so grateful. Um, and I'm, I'm going to start with a few questions you probably get asked all the time. Uh, and then I'm going to move sure. to some questions that are a bit less conventional. But I'm starting with these first ones because I think they're really important for anyone listening to contextualize your experiences. So I want to take us back for just a moment to the best of my knowledge. You were 29 years old when you first experienced weakness in your left foot, which you now yeah. know as a symptom of ALS, but at the time you didn't know what it was. If you could rewind for a second to, to the moment before that symptom emerged, perhaps when you were 28, let's say, um, and just very briefly give us a sense of what your life was like, where you were living, what you were doing. Yeah, I was on top of the world. I, I feel like my 20s, I just felt like I had it figured out. Obviously, you know, I didn't know what was in store, but I graduated from Lehigh in 2010 and immediately moved to New York City to start working at a financial software company. Um, rose pretty quickly there, which was great. I wasn't the best student, but I really liked working and the corporate life. Um, and then moved to San Francisco about four years later to work in tech specifically. That's where I started working for Salesforce. And throughout this, I should mention, like, I've had the best support system. I've had, you know, friends since kindergarten that were still a very close group. My family's very close. So I feel like the work piece was just like one additive component into my life. And then while I was living in San Francisco, I started having some stomach problems, actually. I was, I'd had them throughout my 20s, but they got really, really bad when I was like 27, 28. And I, you know, couldn't really get it figured out. So I ended up going on steroids for about 
a year, which is like 11 months too long. Um, and as soon as I started coming off of them, I'd moved back to New York. I really had started limping. I noticed my calf was tight when I was living in San Francisco, but I thought I was just working out too hard. When I moved back to New York, it definitely started looking like a limp. And that was when I was 29. So again, I just assumed it was nothing serious. But like you said, it was the start of a, a long journey. And, and in a written piece of yours online, you shared it was four years after that, um, at which point you were 33. This was March 2022, so not that long ago, that yeah. you started experiencing weakness in your right foot. Um, and it was after that. And obviously, as you mentioned, you've gone through all kinds of tests, but it was after that that you were officially diagnosed with ALS. I'm sure you've been asked this question many times, but do you remember what it felt like when you got that diagnosis? So well. I mean, those four years, it was bizarre because I think two years into the four-year diagnosis period, like in 2020, someone, one of the doctors brought up ALS and said, you know, I, I think maybe it's showing signs of ALS. We're going to give you some genetic testing. And I just wasn't educated enough about ALS. So when that genetic testing came back clear, I thought I was in the clear. Turns out only 10% of cases of ALS are genetic. I think the doctor honestly saw that I was so relieved and so happy that the genetic test came back clear that they kind of just let it go. And they were like, come back to see us in a few months. Let's see how this changes. But I didn't really notice any changes over the following couple of years. Um, I, my left foot continued to get worse, which, you know, every physical therapist could not understand, but I had sort of put the ALS piece out of my head entirely and just sort of tried to black it out and move on. But beginning of 2022, I noticed my balance was kind of funny. Like as I was walking, I preferred to lean on things. It was kind of hard for me to, to stand on my own. And so around like February, March, I went back in for another test that I'd had done, you know, 10 times already. Um, but this time they saw that I had issues in not just my left leg, but also in my right. And so at that point they were able to say, you know, this definitely looks like motor neuron disease. It's probably ALS, but we want to get you into a specialist. And so I think everyone was kind of passing the baton in, in dropping the, you have ALS diagnosis uh, words, but eventually I did go to an ALS clinic and they said, you know, we're, we're going to track you, but this is looking like ALS. And then as I continued to go in every couple months, they were like, this is ALS. Um, and so it was tough. I mean, I think once I saw that it had progressed into my right leg was really when my hope that it was anything else diminished. I just, I knew it was ALS at that point. It was just hard for me to get other people to be okay with it or accept it. I was in survival and shock mode for like probably two months until I was forced out of the house to go to a wedding. But I don't think I really left the house that much. I, I didn't feel comfortable talking about it. Whenever I would talk about it, I would cry. And so it was just a, a tough situation. Um, but yeah, I, I think my initial reaction was just not understanding how to process it. And so I I kind of tucked myself into bed and tried to escape. And, and do you remember when you got the first sort of presumed diagnosis, was there any loved one of yours in the room with you? And if not, do you remember who the first person you, you told was? 
Yeah, it's so weird with ALS or really with any long diagnosis process because you kind of become desensitized to these appointments. And so, you know, four years into it, I was having one more appointment and I was like, I've had this test 10 times already. I don't need to bring anyone. I can handle this on my own. It's going to be the same thing. So I was by myself when the doctor was like, you know, this, it's affecting your right leg. It's, it's motor neuron disease. And I was like, oh crap, I'm all alone. I had no one to turn to. And I was just, I just sat there, I think crying to the doctor. I don't even really remember um, if I was crying or not. I think he passed me the tissues. So I have to assume that I was, but it was shock. And then I quickly texted my sister and her husband, who are both doctors, because I, I wanted to give them the medical understanding of what I had just had done. And they called me immediately because I think they understood it. Um, and so on the drive home, I was on the phone with my sister. She conferenced in my parents uh, at some point, and we conferenced in my brother too. And it was just sort of a, a sob fest on the phone. And we're, we're going to sort of come back later in the interview, but it sounds like in both directions of you being such a source of comfort and inspiration and hope for so many people and those other people in your life being that source for you back and forth, I think has been, for me, learning about your story seems like such a beautiful part of the journey. Can you tell our, our listeners briefly, and I, I don't want to force you to talk too long about this, but just a little what ALS is. There's definitely going to be people listening yeah. who don't know, who maybe heard the name, but don't know. I think that's most people. Like, I think everyone remembers the ice bucket challenge. I think people know like Lou Gehrig or Stephen Hawking, but I don't think anyone, unless you have to know, really understands what ALS is. So it's a progressive neurodegenerative disease, which means you're continuously getting worse. So basically, your brain stops being able to communicate to your muscles, um, sometimes very quickly, sometimes on the slower side. But if you think about what muscles are controlling for your day-to-day -day life, it's every voluntary movement. So it's walking, it's moving your hands, your legs, your arms. But then it's also things like breathing, like your lungs are muscles, and then your voice box. Um, so with ALS, typically in a very quick period, you lose the ability to move, to talk, to breathe, to swallow everything. Um, so it entirely paralyzes your body. And then eventually most people pass away from a respiratory issue because you can no longer breathe on your own. Thank you for informing everyone a little bit. Um, and, and as we discussed, when you got the, the terminal diagnosis, you were 33. I'm, I'm a couple of weeks shy of 31, um, living in New York City. And so I think there's something- Happy early birthday. Uh, oh, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> um, and so I think there's something about being that age that makes your story feel extra poignant, right? This idea yeah. that when you're in your 30s, I mean, even more in your 20s, but still when you're in your 30s, you know, your lives and your your health, my friends and I tend to take that so for granted. Um, yeah. And, and in fact, those things aren't actually guaranteed. Um, and what specific feelings were conjured just about being so young when you got this diagnosis? It. Yeah, I think that was part of the reason why I was just not able to process it. I still, I mean, a year and a half later, I still don't think I've accepted the diagnosis. I don't think you ever really accept what's going to happen to you. I think I've just learned how to manage my emotions around it and then physically manage my day to day. So 
making adjustments in my life, things like, I mean, I'm in a wheelchair pretty much full time now. So trying to adjust my apartment and make it easy. And then, um, you know, mentally just sort of knowing when days are going to be hard. And, you know, if, if I'm having a bad day physically, like knowing how that's going to affect me mentally, I think it's just sort of a, a game of management as opposed to accepting it because it doesn't seem right to be in your thirties and doing things like coming up with your, you know, medical directives and your will and all things we should probably be doing at 30, but you don't really think about it. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think like, it's, it's crazy to think how quickly everything can change. Like four, five years ago, you know, I was killing it at work. I was, you know, expecting to have a family doing everything. And now, you know, my, my life has changed so much, but it's given me an entirely different purpose. And so I I wouldn't say it's better or worse. I mean, worse in some ways for sure, but it's definitely given me um, more of a, a focus and, and a reason. Like before, I think I was just sort of floating through life without, without, like if, you know, when you write like your college essays and everyone has sort of like a sob story or like something, like I never had one. I was like, my life has been so easy. Like there's no challenge I've had to overcome or obstacle. And now it's like, okay, now I have a purpose here. I, I want to sort of extend on this idea of, of purpose and also reaction, right? You're talking about management and reacting. You you briefly mentioned a second ago this wedding that you went to. I, I think you were a bridesmaid. As a sort yes. of turning point that right after the diagnosis that you really were feeling down for a while. And I'm sure as you write eloquently online, I'm sure still there's ups and downs. I mean, how could there not be? But um, but you mentioned that sort of wedding as this turning yeah. point. I've, I've seen photos, different news outlets have, have put some amazing photographs. But if you could yeah. tell anyone listening what you experienced there, what happened and how it how it may be. Um, gave you some some opening or some space to see how maybe your reaction, even if the circumstance was ultimately going to be the same, could could shift. Yeah, it, it was all meant to be in my mind. So I had been diagnosed in March, and then in at the end of May, one of my best friends from college was getting married. I knew I was a bridesmaid, and I kind of had just tried to put it out of my mind through March and April. I'm like, I'll deal with it when it comes. Um, but once the wedding came, you know, I was in my bridesmaid's dress, which was like a little too tight because I had been in bed for the press two months, like eating M&Ms. Um, and I show up for the weekend with a good friend who came with me um, from home and she was invited to. And as we were walking in, I turned to her and I was like, I, there's no way, like, I, I can't do this. If people ask me questions, I'm just going to start crying. Like I was using a walker, which you know, in front of your college friends that you haven't seen in years, like you want to be the one who won. Like you want to be like, look how great I'm doing. I was walking in with a walker and a dress that was a little too tight. And I was like, this could not be worse. And so I turned to my friend and I'm like, I don't think I can do this. And it's like my best friend from, I was from kindergarten. And she was like, yeah, it could be really embarrassing. Like, or we could just make it fun and just try to like, you know, maybe we'll come up with, come out with a good story around it. Like, let's just try to make it fun. And I was like, fine, I'm going to attempt this. And like two hours later on the dance floor, we had the bride limboing under my walker. I was giving her walker rides all over the dance floor. Like 
we had just turned it around and made this really embarrassing thing funny and almost like made the joke ourselves. And after that, I was like, okay, I don't know that this is a normal reaction to something like this, but I I think like maybe I have the ability to find funny in all of this and, and try to, you know, find the joy in this really dark thing because it, it seemed to make everyone else comfortable too. And so I was like, wow, maybe we could have a different conversation about this. Which you've been doing. Um, and so I was, I was going to ask, you, uh, you share um, through Instagram, through TikTok, um, and super funny videos. When did you decide, was it sort of spontaneous? You put something up online and people were excited and you kept sharing? Or was it like at a certain moment after that diagnosis, you said, I want to I wanna use this challenge that I'm going through to start a different conversation, tell a different story, open people's minds. It was, yeah. So at at that wedding, I actually, I came back with like a new sense of joy, but I also came back with COVID. (laughs) And so a bunch of us got COVID at this wedding. And I remember just like, it was like a few weeks of me just being like feverish and feeling like I had the flu. And I tried to like, what's it called, break my fever by taking a very hot bubble bath. And instead of it breaking my fever, I swear it sent me into like, I call it a fugue state. I have no idea if that's an appropriate term, but like, that's all I can think of. And I opened up my notes app and I just started writing down the funny things that had happened to me since being diagnosed, like funny little bits that I noticed. And Jackie, that same friend who convinced me to walk into the wedding and I got brunch once we had both recovered And I showed her the list and she was like, we're making you a TikTok today. Like this needs to be a thing. And so I think at the beginning, it was more just a way to like, for me to share my diagnosis with people without having to have these sad one-on-one conversations while also showing that, you know, I, I was doing okay and I was, you know, mostly happy and still laughing. And so we did the first video together. I made her do it with me because I was like, I'm not embarrassing myself, but alone, you're doing this with me. And then, yeah, it kind of just became almost like a little outlet for me of of sharing what I was going through without, again, like having these heavy conversations, which I always dreaded with people where they'd, you know, I'd be like, I have this terrible diagnosis, and then they'd get upset. And then I'd be upset. And it was like, this sucks. Like, I, I don't want to just like put this heavy weight on people. So I'd rather tell it to them in more of a, a light way. And then it kind of just took off from there. I think TikTok is a weird place. Like you never know what's going to hit or what's going to miss. I still don't know, like a year and a half later. Um, but it's been a, a really good outlet for me. Did you? When did you decide what you were going to name it, the account? Mm. We had a couple of really bad ideas before I landed on the bad idea I stuck with, which was Limp Bruise Kit. So my, my symptoms had started with a limp. And so I was like, what could I do? Like, I was thinking of things that had ALS in them that had MND, like motor neuron disease in them, and nothing was really sticking. And then I was like, well, I do have a limp. Maybe I'll just throw my name in the middle of Limp Bizkit and just make it Limp Bruise Kit. And just, I mean, it was not a super thoughtful process. I was just like, all right, that'll do. Like, TikTok usernames, I don't think most people think too heavily about them. And so I just went with it. And now, 
every time I do something, people are like, how am I supposed to pronounce this? I'm like, I don't know. I have no idea. I just made it up. <laughs> what, what were the discarded, a couple of the discarded ones, if you mm. remember? I do. I Well, I remember one of them was, uh, you can call me Al's. You know, that's how you can call me Al. <laughs> but that, but like with ALS, I remember that one. And then one that's like, it's so bad was, so a lot of people call it MND, motor neuron disease. And we were like MND Kaling, like Mindy Kaling. But I was like, no one at all is going to get that. They're just going to think I'm a Mindy Kaling fan. <laughs> um, so we stuck with Limbruska and then, you know, who cares? <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I think it's amazing the amount of awareness that you've created through these videos has there been one that's been the most fun to make or the most fun to get whatever came back in your direction from putting it out into the universe so i did in may i i basically been doing a lot of like skits and like almost sketches like goofy little things i put together and then this past May, May is ALS Awareness Month. And I was like, maybe I should just try doing something different and answering questions. Because it seems like a lot of people have questions, but they you know, aren't necessarily comfortable asking. So I put out a video on May 1st being like, I'm going to answer a video every or answer a question every day this month and just post a video every day in the month of May. And that series sort of like blew up what I thought was I thought I had been doing like advocacy and awareness leading up to that. And I think I had been doing a form of it, but I think people really liked just hearing me talk into the camera and answering questions about something that they're scared to ask questions about. Like people are like, how do you feel about assisted death? And how do you feel about this? And it's like stuff, even if you know someone with ALS, something you might be too nervous to ask them. So I think May is when um, I got the biggest response and a lot of people started following along. I'll say that my favorite video that I ever made is um, when I threw out the first pitch of the Orioles game. I think it was in June. I made like a Rocky style video of me training for it. I don't think it even did particularly well, but I was really proud of it. I was like, this is a great video. Uh, but it really didn't do much for awareness. It was more just like a fun video for me to make. And has it felt important to try to show people what day-to-day -day life is is like for you yeah it's it's tricky because like I don't I would I didn't set out to be an advocate I don't know anything about it like advocacy is a whole new thing to me and people like study it like there's you know people who have done this fundraising thing their whole lives whereas like I'm just living my life and I got this weird hand dealt to me and so I'm trying my best to be like I, I, but at the same time, like, I don't really know, you know, what people want to see from me. So I'm just kind of sharing information that I have found helpful living with this. Um, but yeah, I think, I think people like to see just, you know, like simple tricks that I employ in my day to day life. Uh, but it's still sort of a mystery to me. Like, None of us with ALS set out to be advocates. None of us have, or I do not have a medical background. So it's like, I'm just kind of thrust into this position where I'm like, I guess I'm going to try to answer questions, even if I'm not at all qualified to do so.
Yeah, I I think the answers you've been giving have been so helpful to everyone who's following along. I want to ask some questions that are sort of related to lessons you might be learning with the knowledge that that probably changes all the time and that not everything needs to have a lesson. Um, But but some different questions that I think will be really helpful for everyone listening to just hear what your answers are. Um, The first is as follows. There's a phrase that, that gets used so much, it's almost a cliche, which is the phrase, time is precious. We use it a lot in our mm-hmm. culture. Um, I think your current experience probably gives you a different understanding or perspective on that phrase, time is precious. And I, I just wonder what that phrase means to you now. I find it kind of stressful, actually. I think the concept of like knowing that time is limited can be kind of a, a stressful concept because you're like, do I just rush to do everything I've ever wanted to do? Um, but I read somewhere once that like, don't focus on being like happy all the time, focus on being content. And it like takes away a lot of pressure. And I think that kind of helps because I'm like, I'm enjoying my day to day. Is it, you know, the bucket list of the for like the ages? No, but like, I'm still seeing my friends, I'm seeing my family, I'm working, like I'm doing a lot of the things I enjoy doing. And so that's kind of where I've tried to focus. Like I didn't even ma- I don't even have a bucket list. People keep saying like you need to make one. And it stresses me out. I'm like I don't know that I want to put it all into writing cuz like you really have to evaluate your life when you do that. And so I I think I mean time is obviously precious and like I think it's it's just important to know that things can change overnight, um, no matter how easy or hard your life might be, like things can change overnight. And so I'm kind of rambling now, but like these are the thoughts that come to my head when I hear about, you know, limited time It's just like, as long as I'm content, as long as I'm seeing the people that I love, you know, I don't need to put so much pressure on myself. I, I think that's a great answer. And that might inform your answer to the next question, which is what is one thing this illness has taught you is more important than maybe you realized uh, when you were just going through life before all of this emerged, something that's more important? There's definitely a lot that's less important than I always thought. Um, That list is probably much longer. I think more important is like simplifying your life. Like I know the people that I want to spend time with. I know who's there to support me. And so making sure you just cherish those people and and time with them is the most important. Like my niece is going to be Ariel in The Little Mermaid in a few weeks. I have a work trip, like pretty much overlapping with it. And I'm taking the red eye back so that I can see her in this play because I'm like, that's something that matters to me. Um, So I would just say like, simplifying your life down to the people that you love and the things you like doing and then just do those and to flip that which as you mentioned you said you have a longer list for the things that illness has taught you are less important than you thought they were yeah before you got bad uh got sick it's like everything everything is nothing is as important as you think it is like if you think back to an embarrassing moment in like high school and how how it felt so devastating. You're like, I'm never going to recover from this. That's how everything is now in hindsight. Like I remember throughout my twenties, like always being on a diet, always being worried about my appearance, like always being worried about my weight. 
And then when it comes to like now, it's like work. Like I'm, oh no, I need to be the top of my team every month. It's like, just stop. Like none of that stuff. It's okay if you're not, you know, like perfect. Like it's not going to work out. You're never going to be fully happy with with anything if you think that way. Um, And so those are probably like, just two examples, but honestly, like most things would make that list. Yeah. Which comes back to that contentment idea, I think a little bit, um, related last question in this sort of constellation of questions. Yeah. We're both in our thirties. Um, I, I wonder if <laughs> you had the ability all of a sudden to take everyone, let's just say in their, from their mid twenties to their mid thirties and you could just shake mm-hmm. them. And after shaking them, one new understanding would have been imparted into them. One thing that you wish that sort of a lot of our millennial peers could see. So it relates to the last question, but but you could just wave a wave a magic wand and you'd impart one idea to all of them. What do you, what would you want to impart to them? I mean, my like approach to everything is like there's a laugh in there somewhere. Like nothing is that serious. And I think that's guided me a lot through life. Like even in work meetings, I've never been one to like, you know, be serious the whole time. I feel like I'm always looking for a joke throughout everything. And that's helped me stay positive, I think, through a lot of stressful situations. So I would say just like laugh through life and don't stop being so serious and worrying so much. Is there any moment from your journey with ALS that you remember yourself, you've, you've made a lot of other people laugh, but you remember just kind of belly laughing, like just something, maybe laughing at the circumstance or the situation, but it just, it just made you laugh really. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's everything. Like, honestly, this disease is like meant to test people. I think it's like someone up there is like pulling strings and just like chuckling at, at everything they do to people with ALS. But the one that really cracked us up, it's another Jackie story. I feel like I, I talk about her, like she's my, my partner. Um, she kind of is partner in crime. We were out to dinner um, on a double date. It was her husband and my boyfriend and the two of us. And we went to the bathroom together and I, I was using my walker as we were walking out of the bathroom there was toilet paper stuck to my walker trailing behind me. And Jackie was like, Brooke, stop right now. And I looked down, I'm like, I thought that only happened in movies. And she was like, God is really trying to test you like this. She's like, as if the walker wasn't enough. Like, at what point do we just say like, oh my God, like this, someone's playing a practical joke on me. That's like the first one that comes to mind because we were laughing so hard. We're like, who is testing me at this point? Like this, I didn't know like toilet paper actually got stuck to shoes. I've never seen that happen in real life. Only in movies. Wow. <laughs> um, and I'm sure, I'm sure there've been so many funny moments like that. Yeah. Um, when you're, when you talk about this idea, you know, of, of being tested, if you will, um, obviously physical limitation is such a form of, of being tested. I actually, in New York yeah. city, I spend a lot of my time teaching classes um, at seniors residences who everyone in my classes are dealing with physical limitations. So it is just the norm yeah. in these classes. But um, I wonder what you have been learning as a young person, but from the physical limitations you've been experiencing in your body. And, and just to contextualize, you mentioned, so now you're in a, a wheelchair. 
yeah, I went from a a cane to a walker to a wheelchair in nine months of being diagnosed. Like it was fast. It was a very fast transition. And I probably held on to each of those a little too long. Like by the end of my cane time, I should have been using a walker. By the end of my walker time, I should have been in a wheelchair. I think it's taught me that our brains are really protective. Like I don't really think often about what I used to be able to do. I don't even think about a month ago, like less, much less like 10 years ago when I could, you know, run. Now I really don't even try to think too much about like, wow, I used to be able to do that. And now I can't do this anymore. Like about a week ago, I tried to climb stairs and my foot wouldn't even lift to climb the stairs. And I was like, huh, I had no idea that that had changed. Cause I'm trying, I don't, I think my brain is trying to like not focus on anything except for the present. And so I'm not really, I'm not really overthinking about physical limitations. I'm just thinking like, here's what I can do right now. It's probably a powerful way to deal with it. To just think in the present. It, in yeah. Moment. It's like kind of how I have just been dealing with life. Like how, how do I feel right now? Let's not worry too much about a month from now, a year from now. Let's just deal with today. Yeah. And in both directions, as you said, and let's not fixate on what it was a month ago or two months ago of just yeah. like living into the present. I, I want to ask, I, I am one of the many that um, is tremendously inspired by your courage, your optimism. Um, and like I said in the introduction, I'm, I'm grateful that I, I feel like you acknowledge sometimes that it's not always easy to be courageous or optimistic. Yeah. And that's, that's part of life. What helps you through like the days that just are not good days for whatever reason, physically or mentally, just not feeling it? Like, What are the things that help you the most? Yeah, I go into like funks sometimes where I'm just like, everything just feels kind of hard. And I'm like, ugh, you know, like this, I'm just not feeling it today. And then sometimes that'll last a couple of weeks. Um, and I think that's normal. Like, I don't think it's, you know, I kind of have to remind myself, like, that's to be expected. You're not, you know, it'd be weird to be happy all the time with a diagnosis like this. Um, but I, I mean, honestly, like trying to shake up my environment, like this past weekend, I went to see some friends from college, stayed with them. And I feel like that kind of resets you and you're like, oh, okay, I'm ready to go again. Things like that. Or, I mean, if I'm in the mood to be in like a little, a sexy French depression, I've called it. Like I just sit on the couch and I watch my like comfort shows and I'm like, this is fine. You can be depressed tonight. Like it's fine. So it kind of depends, like, if I want to take which path I'm in the mood to take, you know? Yeah. <laughs> but I like that even if you're going to lean into the feeling mopey, to do it in a way that's kind of funny. and. Uh... Yeah. Have you ever watched Crazy Ex-Girlfriend? No, I haven't. Uh, okay. So it, that's, like, one of my comfort shows. And she calls it a sexy French depression. And ever since it's kind of stuck with me, it's a, it's a crazy show. But, like, she really tackles mental health quite a bit. And so, like... Now, whenever I'm in a funk or something, I always, my brain goes to that show and I think it helps. That's great. Um, if, if you could have any fictional character with you on this journey, who, who would it be? House. Mm. Did you watch that show? <laughs> Talk to like, House? He yeah. Could fix, yeah, he could fix me in a second. <laughs> 
that's that's another so crazy ex-girlfriend in the house are like my two comfort shows um as well as harry potter like those are my three go-tos i have a bunch of others that are like on the bench but like those three are usually my go-tos and i feel like of the three house is probably the best one i would want with me um that's a great answer i wouldn't hate yeah i wouldn't hate like a hermione too but like i think house is probably the best bet yeah um and have have you always loved Harry Potter? Always, yeah, always. Mm, I feel like have I re- you? I, Is that, did you I, catch oh, that I, reference? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've been to the Harry Potter film studio in England. Me uh, too. Oh, you have. It's amazing. Yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. And, uh, yeah, I love Harry Potter, and I, I read online when I was prepping for this interview that it sounds like a lot of people in the ALS community love Harry Potter. No, that was like that quote really confused I think I confused the writer of that because what I was trying to tell him is that having ALS you feel like Harry Potter because he like he feels like so hopeless I'm like we are like Harry Potter like in that we feel so hopeless and there's like nothing that's gonna there's no chance of survival until like the very end when all of a sudden you know like this amazing thing happens so I was trying to express that but instead it came out like we all love Harry Potter. And like people in the ALS community were like, what is this girl talking about? I'm like, I honestly don't know anymore. Like, stop giving me the microphone. Is there a song or a poem? I'm a poet, but I can understand the average person probably has more songs than poems that would be of comfort, yeah. but that you find comforting. I mean, there's like a few, I don't, with music, like I feel like I stick to, the same like five bands that I've always listened to but like lately it's obviously been Taylor Swift I feel like that's been a nationwide response her writing I think she and JK Rowling are like the writers of our generation honestly and I don't think I think she gets a lot of credit but like not so much as a writer maybe she does I don't know I just feel like her songs I have to listen to them multiple times before I can even understand all of the metaphors. It's very similar to reading Harry Potter where you're like, I didn't even catch that the first time. So I've been listening to a lot of her lately. I'm I'm curious at this point in your journey, it's an intense question, but do you feel more or less afraid of death than when you first got your diagnosis? It's like somehow both because I don't think the death part is going to be scary or hard. I think it's like what leads up to that. Like it's, there's going to be a point where I'm no longer functioning. And that I think is really scary. Like I think when most people are afraid of death, it's like, you know, they're afraid they're going to get like in a car accident, like something very quick. Mine is almost like the opposite. I'm afraid of like the very slow ending where like I'm not, doing well and I either have to like make a decision or my body's going to make a decision for me I don't really love thinking about that part like I think the death part I'm like I'll come back and like haunt you guys it'll be fine but I think it's like the part before that that's going to be hard not just for me but like seeing the people around me be affected by it because like in a sense like the person dying like it's the people around them that are going to have to deal with it more so so it's I think that's the heavy part do you you believe in an afterlife a hundred percent you have to like I can't imagine not like my boyfriend doesn't he's like I think we die and we just 
that's it. And I'm like, you must be so terrified of death then, because like, that can't be the end of our story. I don't know, like, to what capacity I believe, like what we're actually going to be doing, but I do think like, I'm going to continue on. When you imagine an afterlife, is it sort of like paradise in the clouds? Is it something else? It is. It's like exactly what, like, they, you know, the good place. It's like like that, like, it's just like a town. Like, I I feel like it's just, I'm going to get to hang out with the people I know who have passed too. Like, it has to be like that or else like, what's the point? I I agree that there's, I, I believe there is something beyond this world. Yeah. Like there's too much energy in this world for it to just die off. I, I don't know. Like, even if you think about like, I, I could get really like confused in my own brain about all of this, but I I definitely think there's more than just what we're living right now. I want to, I want to take us back into sort of the present moment there's obviously so much that's challenging about your situation but it also it's clear from from everything that you share that your life has also overflowed with all kinds of blessings too and some of those are blessings that have emerged after the illness as a function of the illness and when I was researching for this interview I actually I looked up Lou Gehrig who who got ALS as I mentioned ALS is also sometimes referred to as Lou Gehrig's disease and I, I discovered an amazing piece of history that Lou Gehrig, for those who didn't know, was a famous baseball player, played with the Yankees for 17 years, was one of the best players of all time. And he was diagnosed in 1939 with ALS. And on July 4th, 1939, the Yankees hosted a Lou Gehrig Appreciation Day at Yankee Stadium. It was completely sold out. There were almost 62,000 fans there. And on that day, Lou Gehrig stood at home plate. He gave an iconic speech that today is known as the luckiest man speech. And in the speech, he said the following. This is a direct quote. For the past two weeks, you have been reading about a bad break. Yet today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. And he thanks the players that he's he played with. He even he thanks the groundskeepers. He thanks his wife. He even thanks his mother-in-law. It's a very short speech, but in the in the lines in the middle, he does all that. And then he comes back to the same theme with the end of the speech. He says, quote, I might have been given a bad break, but I've still got an awful lot to live for. And there were articles, I, I looked at these articles that said there was like silence in this, this is a baseball stadium for like yeah. a couple minutes after. I'm sure there were scarcely a dry eye in that stadium so i think of that line to be faced with illness and still in lou gehrig's case is in his quote to see himself as the luckiest person on earth i want to ask a related but slightly different question which is what do you feel are some of the biggest blessings that have come out of this illness for you and are there there don't have to be but are there things that have emerged because of your illness that that you do feel lucky to have received yeah, I think it's it's probably a hard question to ask because you're like, you might be worried, like, is this crazy to be like, what's good from your terminal illness? But like, I think it's a really important question to ask because there are, there's a list of answers that I can give. I think like my my initial reaction is when you are given a terminal diagnosis, you're almost like living your funeral, which is a crazy thing to say, but like, People tell me how they feel about me all the time. And I don't think we do that normally with people. Like, you know, my friends will be like, 
just telling me like the moments that we've shared together and like, you know, what they think of when they think of me, like those things that you would say in a speech at a funeral, but maybe not say to the person. I feel lucky that I get to hear a lot of those things. And especially with social media, like I get strangers telling me that too. Um, And so I, I think that's probably like the most unique piece. Um, But also I think I've just seen a lot more good in people in general. Like I, I just notice people are a lot more willing to help. Um, And I probably didn't notice before because I didn't need to ask for help as much, but now I'm asking for help all the time, like just to get a package you know, into my lap and my mail room, like there's always a neighbor there that's like, I can help, I can help and like jumping in. And so you see a lot more humanity in people too. And that first piece you mentioned is so actionable for anyone listening. It doesn't, it doesn't even have to relate to terminal illness, but just to say the things that you love to people (laughs) and to to not hold that back. I have a friend whose uncle passed away and uh, I remember she, she wrote a post online quoting him and the idea was to give away whatever kindnesses you have because they'll always come back with a profit. Um, and I think it's the same about kind words, to say the nice things that we that we think and that we feel and to not wait. Um, yeah. I uh, want to ask this. I, I hope that we'll have a lot of listeners who are uh, similar age to us. And this, this kind of builds off the earlier question I asked, but we spend so much time comparing ourselves with others i think <laughs> that so many people spend so much time am i am i keeping up am i where i should be am i as good as that person professionally personally uh is there any wisdom that that you could add because you've already given some uh, just just to speak directly into that about comparing yourself to others um of what you would tell anyone listening on that theme yes And because I think most people's go-to quote for that is comparison is the thief of joy. And I find that so unhelpful. I'm like, thank you for pointing that out. But now what? Like, you're not telling me how do I, how do I avoid comparison? You're just telling me it's making me unhappy. So like, whenever people say that, I'm like, thank you for the note. Like, that's so unhelpful. Um, But I find that like, I think purpose is the opposite of comparison. Like, I I find it really easy for me to look around and see my friends having babies, having promotions, like having all the things you want in your 30s. And I look at myself and I'm like I'm shopping for a new wheelchair. Like why is this my my path? But it's my purpose. Like it's not a why me situation. Like why me is a question that I should be able to answer. And like, I'm answering it by saying like, this is my purpose in life. And so I think like, if you find yourself comparing yourself to other people, make sure you know, like where your path is leading, like whether that's advocating for something, whether that's, you know, any kind of goal or purpose that you think your purpose is in life, like charge towards that, because it's probably a different path entirely than these other people who you're comparing yourself to taking so i would just say purpose is the antidote amen um i have i have three last questions yeah the first if you could just share with everyone listening and you do this in your videos but what are some concrete ways people listening can help those living with als 
Yeah, I think I always find the calls to action to be a challenge because they're they're pretty big, but I think there's a couple different ways you can advocate. The easiest one I think is following along with my story or someone else living with ALS who maybe looks like you. ALS does not discriminate like race, gender, age, anything. It does not discriminate. So there is someone living with ALS that looks like you. If that's me, follow along with my story. If that's someone else, follow along with theirs. But like, don't look away from our stories just because it's, it's hard to watch sometimes. That's, I try to make mine, you know, positive and filled with laughter because I want people to, to want to watch what's going on with me and, and see my daily life. Um, but just like not forgetting about us as a population because we die very quickly. And so not a lot of people with ALS have the opportunity to advocate and share their stories. And so I've been given, you know, this gift of extra time. So I'm choosing to make it my job to advocate. Um, so that's probably the easiest one because everyone's on social media. So go look up Limp Bruise Kit. And then beyond that, like there's tons of ways to get involved. I know people like to advocate in different ways, whether that's, you know, awareness, maybe it's legislation, maybe it's like veterans rights. There's tons of different paths for you there. Um and then funding, of course, is the obvious one. ALS is a very underfunded disease. We know very little about this disease, even though it's been around for, you know, hundreds of years, hundred plus years. Um, and so that's that has been my call to action for my followers a lot is is donating to really any ALS organization that calls to you. There's so many that do different things. Any specific ones you'd recommend? It's so tough because there's ones that focus really heavily on patient care. So like Team Gleason, ALS Association. And then there's one that, ones that focus more on research like um, ALS TDI, Project ALS, Target ALS, ALS One. You can see like the landscape is a little too big at this point, um, but they're all working towards a greater goal. So um, any of those I would recommend. Amazing. So my last two questions, and they're they're difficult questions, but I, I feel you've just been oh so boy. generous with answering everything that I'm I'm going to ask them because I, I think they will yield yeah. answers that people will find really helpful. The first, if you were to record one or two lines of you sharing something, wisdom and insight, or it could just be something funny, it doesn't have to be serious, that yeah. you want your friends to play once a year when you're gone, may that be a long, long time from now and, and may a cure for ALS emerge speedily. Um, yeah. But but what would you maybe want, you know, what would it give you joy to know that your friends would be listening to you say of words of yours and your voice left behind to them? That's such a good question. Do you know the answer for you? Like, is it is it an obvious thing that comes to the top of your head? Because I'll, I'll tell you, like, what's going through my head is like, I I quote movies and vines and oh, vine. I mean, that's so that makes me sound so old, but like I quote more vines than like anything else. And I think like that's how my family and friends would want to remember me is like quoting something that cracks me up and just like hearing me laugh because that's like what I think a lot of them associate me with is just like goofy laughter. I don't think it would, I think if I tried to do words of wisdom, they would like laugh at me they'd be like this is not like Brooke did not come up with this she's reading from 
the internet. Um, so I think it would just have to be like something to make them laugh or maybe like pretending to be a ghost haunting them and being like, I'm watching. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Yeah. My, mine is, I feel like it is a quote. that's my favorite quote. That's probably the quote I would leave. It's a Maya Angelou quote. Um, that I feel like to me is like a, it's a guidepost of how one wants to live their life. The quote is, this is a mm. wonderful day. I've never seen this one before. And I, I, oh, I, I love that. I think about it a lot. I share it a lot in the classes that I teach, but just what would it look like to remember that every day that we're gifted with, if we let it, can be filled with something new, even a new conversation, a new friendship, yeah. a new thing we listen to, thing who knows? Um, that that would probably be I my. I that. I want that like in a poster on my. In my yeah, <laughs> I'm sure on the internet we could find posters of it. Yeah. Um, but my my last question that's on this same theme, but it's it's a question I've been asking everyone through this project. Imagine there's a new tradition in our world where before everybody passed, they decided what they wanted on their tombstone. Is sort of what they hope that people remember about them or what they hope their legacy was in some way. I wonder what you might want written on yours. You know, if we changed it from, you know, normally it's just name and loving yeah. son, this, all of which are really important, but something more, you know, everyone created something more distinct to them. Yeah, I feel like mine should say like still laughing or like laugh, laugh along with me type of thing, like getting people to like, pause and being like, what? Like, what? that's so creepy. But I feel like that's what I would prefer is like still laughing. Mm, I like that. And as I said, and I hope everyone listening will check out your videos, you allow people to laugh along with you. So so first of all, I just want to thank you so much for joining me today for sharing so richly. Um, for responding to my outreach. Uh, thank you for your courage, your laughter, and your deep humanity. I'm, I'm really grateful. Yeah, thank you. This this podcast is going to be a hit. You're so thoughtful with your questions. I feel like you could be the next like Freakonomics guy. Oh, thank you. What's his name? Uh, Levitt. Uh, there's Levitt, and there's another. I feel like there's... Ira. Ira, Ira, Ira Glass. I was thinking of. Yeah, you could be the next Ira. Oh. Your name is just his backwards. I know. Oh. Oh, that I'm even more grateful. Um, and to, to everyone listening, I encourage you to learn more about ALS, um, to follow Brooke on TikTok and Instagram at Limp Brusket, and to donate to ALS-related causes if you're financially able to. I imagine that every little bit helps. And to all those listening, I'm really appreciative of you taking the time. I hope you'll listen to more episodes of Once Upon a Conversation I have genuinely been inspired and nourished by every one of the conversations that I've been having. And so I hope you'll choose to encounter the wisdom, but really just the humanness of all the people I've been lucky enough to talk to through this project. So thank you again for tuning in.